You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Emily Austin, who is a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University, also the author of this book here called Living for Pleasure, An Epicurean Guide to Life. And I should mention also, I think you're an expert on dying, right? So you got a book on life, but you're an expert on dying. Welcome, Emily. I actually haven't done it, though. I have not yet died. So I definitely am an expert on attitudes towards death, especially in ancient Greek philosophy, but not an expert in dying so much. Yeah, it's hard to find experienced dyers out there. But when I was reading this book, it really made me realize the extent to which I am, in fact, an Epicurean, right? And in fact, I bet there are a lot of people that read this book and they come to that realization. And so when I'm trying to plumb the archaeology of my own kind of view of life, I don't think I really read much Epicurus. I read some Lucretius, but I think that these perspectives, they seep into a lot of people's consciousness indirectly, particularly people who study the kind of Renaissance or early modern period, they get this indirectly. But I still think that there are plenty of people that have a misunderstanding of what it means to be an Epicurean. And part of the reason why you wrote the book, I think, is to correct those misimpressions. And we have websites called Epicurious, right? And we have restaurants called Epicureans, and, and I think they've gotten this rap as being the pleasure seekers. But I think you portray them as being much more sober and prudent than they are perceived by the general public. Why is it that Epicureanism is misunderstood? And then why is it that when it's understood properly, it's so attractive? Yeah, that's a really good question. So part of the popular understanding of Epicureanism, like you're saying, is actually associated with food often. And that's mostly because he is a hedonist, right? So he takes pleasure to be what makes life good. And generally, when we think about pleasure, we do run to extremes just naturally. So people thought, oh, well, he thinks pleasure is the good. That must be he's living a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? I don't know if that's just some natural thing that human beings just run to the extreme, sort of like if you focus on pleasure, all hell breaks loose. But so part of it is this extreme hedonism. And it's clear that Epicurus has a very intellectually refined hedonism. And even at the time, he was really worried that people were misunderstanding him. He would say people through willful misrepresentation or just a misunderstanding think that we eat a lot of fish and drink wine all day. But that's not us, right? We're, we're really into sober calculation. That's his phrase. And I guess some people who have been long-time sympathizers with Epicureanism in order to fight that misrepresentation have, I think, overcorrected. So they play up this sober calculation. And so they say something like, oh, no, he's an ascetic, right? So he says he's a hedonist, but his hedonism is, in fact, aimed at tranquility. So it's aimed at a kind of the state is called ataraxia. It's an absence of anxiety and pain that is itself a, a steady state that is pleasant. So when you start thinking of pleasure as the absence of pain, you can see how pretty quickly you get away from sex, drugs, and rock and roll because obviously too much alcohol will give you a hangover the next day. So the people who are sympathetic to Epicureanism, they tend to overcorrect and say he's just about fighting anxiety, he minimizes desires, and he subsists on a diet of bread and water. So it's like you could get either 
Epicurus the glutton or Epicurus the hunger artist. And really the truth is somewhere in the middle. So he thinks that if we structure our life well and we calculate short-term and long-term pleasure well, we'll end up with um, a kind of life of satisfaction. And that, you know, that results from his taxonomy of desires, and we can talk about that. But I think the in some sense, the misrepresentation just comes from a general suspicion of pleasure. And then the people who have been sympathetic to him rob him of that focus on pleasure. But it's really somewhere in between. But I mean, there's a positive element to his philosophy, but there's also a normative element. Are they necessarily entangled, right? So on the one hand, he claims that pleasure is what drives pretty much all behavior. But then he says, and so it should, except I I think he says that people are not very good at it. <laughs> so there's a, there's a way to do it well and, and a way to do it poorly. This kind of survives in, in economics, right? In economics, we will say that everybody is attempting to maximize their their utility. And then the, the behavioral economists come along and say, well, they're doing a terrible job of it, right? But the danger that you run into with that positive description is that it at some level can become tautological, right? No matter what somebody's doing, you would say, well, that's somehow the pursuit of pleasure, right? You do something, it's pursuit of pleasure. Somebody else doesn't do it, and well, they're pursuing pleasure. And therefore, pleasure is whatever anybody says it is. So you highlight that even when you're observing people, there is sort of a subjective assessment of happiness and, and an objective assessment of happiness. Does it make sense for people? I mean, if someone says they're happy, you say, no, you're not. You're not happy. You're not really happy. Yeah, I mean, so I guess... It's true that Epicurus is what's called a psychological hedonist. So he thinks that whether we like it or not, resist it all you like, what we're doing when we act is pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And some of that comes out of his remarkably um, modern science. So he, he thought that we were sophisticated animals and he took animals to navigate the world and learn about it through pleasure and pain. And we have sophisticated powers of deliberation and we can calculate what's to our advantage with respect to other human beings, and we have a sense of ourselves in time uh, as having present and a past and a future. And so we are, though, at root animals, and animals pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And I think that a lot of contemporary economists and even people who are uh, drawn to the study of ancient Greek philosophy as a side interest, or um, they actually um, should be drawn to uh, Epicureanism because it is rooted in a very modern science. So he's he had a proto-evolutionary theory. He has a universe that was not created with a purpose. It's just atomistic causation. And actually the kind of indeterminacy that shows up in particle physics and even in the studies of spontaneous activity in the brain. And so he builds the hedonism out of that. So he just thinks it's a psychological principle. And I think in some sense... But, but is the physics stuff necessary? You could talk about Epicureanism, and most people do, without ever mentioning the, the atomism and the kind of physics stuff. Yeah, I think... So one thing to say is just that the Stoics themselves also, they took themselves to be offering a systematic philosophy. So if you ask them specifically, they would say, yeah, it's necessary. And part of that is that They think that if you're combating anxiety, you need to think about whether what death is. Because if you have a fear of death and you need to get rid of that anxiety, then it needs to be, you need to do it within the confines of what natural science says. And and Epicurus is going to say, well, look, physicalism makes an afterlife impossible. 
what we need is an account of death that will make it possible for us to not fear it, given that science tells us it's annihilation, right? So if you think there are various ways in which superstition can make people provoke anxiety, then you need to have a basic understanding of science. And so they thought actually natural science was the root of getting rid of a lot of anxiety. And for us, in some sense, that's just that kind of science is just our science. And so it doesn't seem so radical to us anymore. But at the time, the the Stoics were engaging in divination. They were interpreting the entrails of birds. (laughs) And the Epicureans were saying no, right? And lots of people were worried about the afterlife. And they said, well, no, that's not happening. And so in some sense, we can do it without natural science because that's just already our natural science. But at the time, it was very controversial. If you think people have a fear of the gods, then you need some explanation of whether the gods played any role in the creation of the universe or whether they can intervene capriciously or whether they can punish you for something you've done and you don't understand why. And so the Epicureans thought the science was very important. And it was also important to the hedonism because, again, they think we're animals, right? We don't have these rational capacities because we're like gods, right? So they thought it was really important. But for us, yeah, I think we can do it without. And when I wrote the book, I put the science at the end because I knew that would be probably not the reason most people were approaching the book. But I do think if you're thinking about why he was a hedonist, you need to think about his natural science. But you're right, too, that he is this psychological hedonist. He just thinks we do pursue pleasure, but we do it very badly often. And in part, it's because we're not studying the natural science. And for him, the natural science includes things like the study of psychology, and the study of economics. And so we're making poor prudential decisions. And part of Epicureanism is to say, well, look, if you if you arrange your desires the right way, then you'll stop making those poor decisions and you'll be more satisfied in life and have more joy and uh, less anxiety. Uh, but you're right. He thinks we are pursuing pleasure often in the long term, often indirectly, but nevertheless, we do it very badly because we're not very good at predicting the future or taking it into account when we uh, decide what to do. Well, I mean, a lot of what he's saying, I think, lines up well with what we observe empirically and have built science around, right? He says humans are really bad at hedonic forecasting, right? Like you just don't know you know, you predict really poorly how well you're going to feel in the future, right? We've done research on the hedonic treadmill. He speaks about that. We've talked about in behavioral economics, about hyperbolic discounting. And he says, yeah, you discount the future too much. But then some of it, it seems to be non-empirical, right? Like when, if someone says they're happy and they believe in say an interventionist God, he'll say, well, you're not really happy. Or if someone says, yeah, I'm happy with my yachts and my pursuit of power, and he'll say, well, no, you're not, right? It it seems like that move is really almost built on just some unilateral assertion. Is is that also based, you think, in observation? Or is that sort of what he ex-ante thinks ought to be true? I think he thinks it's based on observation. And it's true that almost all of these ancient Greek philosophers had a really vested interest in saying things like, It's necessary to be virtuous, to be happy. But they didn't want to just assume it arbitrarily. They didn't want to beg the question. And I think Epicurus has, in some sense, the better approach to it. So there's a sense in which what he'll say is, and I think he doesn't necessarily have a great answer to say true psychopaths or sociopaths, but 
I think what he'll say is something along the lines of, well, look, you've got this cognitive dissonance, or you're easily provoked, or if I observe you over time, uh, I'm going to notice that you're actually quite anxious, uh, or you have trouble defending your views, and so you tend to avoid criticism or lash out at it. And so I think that there's a lot of ways in which we just now take it to be given that people can be unaware that they're anxious or sensitive. And then I think if you ask even people who say they're happy and you say, but are you anxious, right? Are you worried? Do you spend a lot of time up at night concerned about your career? Are you worried about your children's success? Generally, they're going to follow up this claim that they're happy by saying, oh yeah, all the time, <laughs> right? So I don't think, I think he's giving this big picture psychological view. And yeah, if there's someone out there that says, I, I have no anxiety about being caught and I'm committing horrible crimes and I take myself to be the happiest person without relationships and I just live a great life, then I think he would have to say, okay. But I think he thinks those people have got to be rare or perhaps even non-existent. Who makes sweeping claims, if you commit injustice, you're always going to be afraid of being caught. And maybe there are people who are not. But even if you think about how weird it is that DNA evidence has changed everything and Ancestry.com, like some relative of yours, sends in some DNA and you're going to get caught. I do think he thinks there's just anxiety built into various kinds of antisocial behavior or even just investment in things that are uncertain. So I think the follow-up questions is where he would go. And I think most people would say, oh, yeah, I've got all sorts of anxiety. Well, that's part of the root of his disagreement with the Stoics, right? So the Stoics would say, you know, you have duties and the duties are independent of what their impact is on you, right? And he would say, well, these things are typically doing right and doing the thing that makes you happy or just not going to be in conflict all that often. But the Stoics are saying, well, they're in, they're in conflict quite a bit. And so you've got to take the high road. Well, no, actually, I don't want to be that person who's like, well, actually, but the Stoics are, they, these are all eudaimonist theories. So they all think that what we're doing will lead to happiness and that it will bring tranquility. So the Stoics think that virtue, though it could be physically painful, and though you might be pursuing something through reason alone, with little thought to pleasure, they just make this weird, equally somewhat arbitrary move, which is that, oh, by the way, one of the things that accompanies virtuous action is tranquility and joy. So they all think that what we're doing is pursuing happiness. The Stoics just think that the only good thing is virtue and the only bad thing is vice. And so if you have the good thing, which is the possession of virtue, you have to be happy for the Stoics. They don't, they can't make sense of any other view. And so in some sense, what we're getting is a different explanatory paradigm, but they're both aimed at happiness. And Plato is at pains to show this, and, and so is Aristotle. And and in some sense, there's part of me that you don't want to say, they're all in the same boat, so that makes it okay. But they do all think that whatever conception of ethics they're giving is almost isomorphic in some sense with their account of happiness. They just have to do a lot of work to convince us of that. But they all have that objective view. And it's true, you're right, that if you read a lot of the contemporary modern Stoicism, there's very little talk of virtue, right? There's lots of talk about resilience, and there's lots of talk about how you don't want to do things, but it's good for you. Uh, but that's not, the ancient Stoics did, didn't 
they thought the central feature of Stoicism was virtue and that it led to happiness. Um, and that's all you needed. But they all believe that you need some kind of strategy, right? That you need to think carefully about the route you're going to take to this happiness, right? Yeah, they did. And, and part of that, too, is that they were all, in some sense, what sometimes is called particularists, right? So they thought quite reasonably that what it is for you to act virtuously in some situation, some particular situation, will be different even than what it might mean for me to act virtuously under that circumstance. And so part of developing virtue is actually being able to deliberate about what is virtuous for you, given the person you are and the circumstances you're in. And so they think that, yeah, we're constantly calculating. And when we get it right, <laughs> or approximately right, then that's what it is to kind of succeed at virtue. And yeah, they all thought that would lead to happiness. And in part, it's because um, they all kind of agree with Epicurus that vicious people are unhappy and they have divided souls and they can't make good friends because you can't trust people who are vicious. And so they just think there are all these things that are good about life and virtue, at least some modicum of virtue. And then for some of them, plus some external goods like money and friendships and things like that will lead to happiness. The weirdness about the Stoics is that they think you don't need anything other than virtue. So you don't need friends, you don't need money, you don't need a stable political environment. You don't need any of these things that behavioral economists or economists in general tell us are actually necessary for happiness and do contribute to subjective well-being. Like being able to pay your bills is really important for well-being. Well, a lot of the Stoics were pretty wealthy. Seneca was one of the wealthiest guys of his time, right? Yeah, he was at least Bezos level. And to, I was told by a friend, which I think is fair, that I wasn't quite fair to Seneca in the book, or at least I was a bit judgmental. But yeah, he, I actually, in retrospect, no, I'm going to take that back. Seneca was just, he, it's hard to take him seriously as a Stoic, at least given his life, right? So the way that he pandered to Nero, the way that he stockpiled money. But at least in some cases, he admits he's a hypocrite. Even at the end of his life, he said, he's trying to escape politics. And one of the big differences between the Stoics and the Epicureans is the Epicureans just think, you know, avoid politics. <laughs> and the Stoics think it's a, a demonstration of your masculinity and your, your excellence to participate in politics. And when Seneca realized that he had perverted his soul by pandering to Nero, including, I think, trying to help him cover up killing his mother. <laughs> he tried to drop out of politics, and he wrote this essay trying to, you know, he says something like, now a lot of you will think I suddenly agree with Epicurus, <laughs> but, um, but I think it's okay for a Stoic to drop out of politics very late in life. Um, so yeah, I do think that um, Seneca was not a paradigm Stoic, and many of the Stoics were emperors in the Roman era. But then I'll, it's actually true that the most, the hotbed of modern stoicism is also Silicon Valley. So maybe there's something anthropological about it. Or Yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about why stoicism is so popular now and Epicureanism is not. We got to start a new movement. But maybe we can just dig into desire, right? I think Epicureans will say that different desires are deserving of different levels of our attention. Right. The economics perspective is that no one's going to judge desires. All desires are treated equally and so forth. If you're a classic utilitarian, you're neutral with respect to desire. But I think Epicurus kind of has a, there's a hierarchy of desires, right? Yeah. So Epicurus is, 
in part for conceptual reasons, committed to the idea that every pleasure is good. So he does think every pleasure is good, but not all of them are his term as choice worthy. So he thinks that if you're curating your desires uh, for tranquility, which is again, this sort of roughly anxiety-free state that sort of frees up lots of cognitive and emotional bandwidth for joys, right? If that's what you're after, then he has a strategy for thinking about your desires. He breaks them up into these really cumbersome terms because Epicurus was not an elegant writer. So he has this threefold taxonomy, which he calls the natural and necessary, the natural and unnecessary, and the unnatural and unnecessary. Now, imagine saying that or writing that over and over again, and you can see why I called them the necessary desires, the extravagant desires, and the corrosive desires. And so he thinks that you can reach tranquility if you can consistently satisfy your necessary desires. And he's very optimistic about your chances for satisfying them, if, especially if you have friends and band together. And, and the necessary desires are actually both the self-evident ones, like food and water and shelter, but also some ones that are at least a little bit more effort and that many people don't have. A community of friends is really necessary for psychological stability and also uh, the sense that you will be protected in moments of peril. And then also, as we were talking about earlier, the basic understanding of natural science. So there are some necessary goods that lots of people find themselves without, even if they're, you know, well-fed and have good health insurance. So one of the things that is important is you do have to pursue these things like friendship and knowledge of natural science. And then the second- Well, kind of like, I mean, if you think about the animals in the zoo, right? They're well-fed, they got great health care, they got beds to sleep in, they don't have to worry about predators, but they're all mentally ill, right? That's true. But I think- yeah, so it, it's true that in some sense, that's just a good case for why even they need more than these basic, what we think of. As well, I think for them, the sociality would be a, a basic need, right? Yeah, no, it's true. And I am sure that the animals in the zoo, which are quite miserable, they're less miserable if they have friends. <laughs> but, so yeah, for human beings, though, again, because we have these cognitive skills that most animals don't, which like being in time, etc., we do need a a kind of working understanding of the world that they don't have, because there are some anxieties they don't have, at least if you think they're not aware of the inevitability of their death or um, something like that. But to the second class of desires is actually, and most people think the sort of overlay fancier versions of the necessary desires. So this would be food that is, he doesn't think you, you want it all the time, because actually, if you have it all the time, then it's no longer extravagant. But these are like fancier versions of the necessary desires. And he thinks that if you have the necessary desires, you have what you need for happiness, but the extravagances adorn or embellish or your happiness. And in fact, under most circumstances, you're going to have various opportunities for extravagances. So it is a pretty austere circumstance when you find yourself with these only the necessary desires, but you can make do with them. And he thinks you're not supposed to treat the extravagant ones as necessary for your happiness. And more importantly, you're not supposed to pursue them if it takes you away from the necessary desires. So for instance, if you thought, I really only want to go to fine restaurants, but my friends don't have money for that, right? So if you're alienating your friends or you're going to Rome when your mother is sick, then you're not prioritizing things correctly. And he has this third class of desires, and there's only one kind of unnatural desires, which is the unnatural and unnecessary, because he thinks 
again, perhaps as you suggest arbitrarily, that anything that is unnatural just doesn't produce happiness. But he doesn't mean unnatural in the sense of like artificial. He means it as contrary to our nature. And the the way that I think the best way to characterize these desires is that they're limitless. So they're the sorts of things about which you might say you can never have too much or more is always better. And so they might be for limitless wealth or limitless life or limitless power. And one feature of a desire like that is that it's never satisfied, right? Because there's always more. And Epicurus thinks tranquility is a kind of satisfaction. It's being satisfied with having what you need. So if you have these desires, he thinks you're always going to be dissatisfied and then they're competitive. So you're going to alienate people. And if you really care a lot about them a lot, then you're going to commit injustice and that's going to cause anxiety or you'll become like a lackey or a bully to get them more. And that will again cause anxiety and alienate you. And so he thinks you should cut those out entirely. So necessary ones, get them, focus on them, their priorities, and then pursue the extravagances as they come along. And often those will be the most memorable experiences of your life. So he, for various reasons, including the role of memory in his coping with misfortune, he he wants you to pursue them the right way. So again, necessary, get them focus, extravagance, enjoy them, corrosive, root them out. So you could take that tripartite division of desire and apply it in any domain, right? So if you apply it to food, then the extravagance are the Michelin star restaurants, right? You know, you go to a Michelin star restaurant and if someone hears you went to a Michelin star restaurant, they think, oh, aren't you fancy, right? But if you're content to sit down and have a nice hamburger and you're content with that, and then if you get the opportunity to go to Michelin star restaurant, go for it. Don't feel bad about it. Check it out. I think that would be the proper way of understanding it. But then if you become someone who is racing to be the person who ate the most exotic foods or went to the most exotic places and you're in, there's a league table and you're trying to get to the top of the league table, that's when it would become corrosive, right? Right. And I think obviously, you know, extravagances are strange socially, right? One thing about the Epicureans is we do have this association with them being gluttons, but they did eat together. And Seneca called them a, a shade-loving clan of philosophical banqueters. So they did think it really mattered who you ate with, not so much what you ate, but there's no reason, like you say, right? So under certain circumstances, we just go places where there's a tasting menu. And and it's interesting, the times that I have been in very fancy restaurants have often been actually with my graduate advisor, who's a bit of a foodie. And when I was a graduate student, I couldn't possibly have afforded it. We went to this very fancy restaurant in DC and had the fixed menu. And it was the first time I had any real time to get to know him, like a long conversation. And it was an insanely memorable dinner, which is, again, for Epicurus, that's really important. But if you go to these restaurants, actually, if you look around, which I've, I've been to a few generally, again, with him or groups at conferences, you'll see that there are certain people there who they're not savoring it at all, right? You can just, you can tell from their vibe that they do it all the time and they, they don't talk to one another. It's like another notch in their bow, right? Right. And then the other thing you're talking about, which is, I think, also true, this kind of bizarre competition or pride about extravagances. And that plays out in one-upmanship. Or you're, you, you talk about your trip to Rome with someone who's never going to go. and it, You put it on your social media, right? Exactly. I, I use this, I, I'm using this example for some reason at this moment, even though I've never been to Rome. But yeah, so there's, and then there's even like the snobbery of it, right? So uh, my sense of what counts as a 
worthwhile extravagance is better than yours. And for Epicurus, whatever extravagance counts as an extravagance for you, back to your utilitarian conception of desire, he's cool with that, right? If you really like Bud Light, if it's special for you, then he's like, great, enjoy it, right? And so he doesn't think of extravagances as features of class or things to compete about. He just thinks of them often as like memorable things you do with your friends. So yeah, solitary Bud Light drinking, not so great. Go into a barbecue, drink whatever you like. Yeah, and he emphasizes the importance of eating with other people. I didn't know this. You point out in the book that in France, it is illegal to eat at your desk. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing because that is very common in America for people to eat at their desk. It's very common for families even to have individual meals where the various members of the family will go off and eat their meals by themselves, which to me is disturbing. And most people think I'm strange because I always ins insist on eating with other people and having people over to my house all the time. But I think that really seems to be the most important thing for Epicurus and Lucretius, right? This idea that you need to be part of some social fabric, people who care about you and who you care about and who you trust. And I think there was a quote that you had in, in the book, I think it was your quote, that friends don't make friends feel anxious, right? Yeah. No, I think, so it's interesting. I had this moment where I thought about, so there's that thing which you mentioned, which is great, that it's illegal to eat at your desk or for your employee to employer to even let you. So the thing that fascinates me is how um, much Americans, if you look at our newspapers and magazines and commercials for home improvement stores, it's clear that we really want to have dinner parties or throw barbecues, but they always look so glamorous that we psych ourselves out. So it's like our furnishings won't look appropriate or we don't have the right outdoor furniture. And for the Epicureans, it's really just about the people there. And I remember going to this dinner party. It was actually thrown by the woman who's now the chair of my department. And it was actually a big group of people and I hadn't met some of them. And it was so much fun. And she just had paper plates and frozen pizzas and we all brought beer and nobody wanted to go home. And I thought, wow, if this is all you need for a dinner party, like a successful dinner party, why haven't I been throwing them? <laughs> and yeah, so I think there is this kind of, again, this view about extravagances and this way that we internalize kinds of status that pulls us away from having meaningful relationships. So I think that is part of, it's sad when it's, you know, it's anxious, it's, it produ produces anxiety to see your friends, right? And then, yeah, I think that it is true that for Epicurus too, like just in, in the general sense that friends don't make friends anxious, as I have it in the book, the two most important things for having a good friend are trust and a shared sense of fundamental values. And uh, a lot of people gave Epicurus grief about the idea that friendship was founded in trust. When that means, you know, that your friend isn't going to abandon you for trivial reasons. And if you are in peril, your friend will be there to help you. And I think in general, when we think about true friends, that is what we're looking for. And and people like the Stoics criticized Epicurus because they thought, again, that you should be self-sufficient and resilient and you're not supposed to need other people. And the Stoics oddly thought that other people were opportunities to display your own virtue, right? So it's sort of like, ah, oh, I can display my own virtue on my friend, but it's not based in vulnerability. Whereas Epicurus's account of 
friendship depends on this recognition of vulnerability and that we need other people and that they need us. Um, but he doesn't think it's transactional. Um, he thinks it's really a confidence that the person will be there for you, even if you never really need them. And so, but there's also this idea that you have to care about the necessary things and not care about the corrosive things. And when you think back on junior high and all these shifting alliances between people and you, you think adults outgrow that, but they don't. If you have a friendship that's based in popularity or attractiveness or honor or even business advantage, when that thing goes away, if you can't satisfy that as well, even as somebody else, then you're going to worry that your friend will leave you, right? But if being a friend is fundamentally being a trustworthy person, then that's within your control and largely not barring psychiatric conditions and other sorts of grave misfortunes. It's persistent. So I think you do need to have this idea that those things don't matter. And as an adult, it's, it's fascinating, right? When, you, when somebody starts to have some success, people who basically almost pretend they don't know you will be like, hey, let's go out for a drink, right? But given the finite amount of time we have and energy we have, you go out for a drink with that person and you're neglecting a friend who's been trustworthy. And so you can start seeing some of this sort of shifting allegiances, even in adulthood, it's really fascinating. So those are the things that I think for Epicurus are central to friendship. But then once you have those things, you enjoy all these extravagances together and those friends are there for you during times of need and you have all these wonderful memories with them. And, and even when you find yourself dying, you don't feel like you're going to be abandoned. And for Epicurus, that's central. But if you don't develop those friendships, if you don't focus on them and foster them and reinforce them, then you're going to find yourself without them and anxious. So again, that's why he puts them in the necessary category. And I think in America, that's where a lot of people struggle, like struggle in particular. So yeah, I think we don't prioritize the people in our lives. But Yeah, I, I remember when I was teaching at Virginia, I had a dinner party once. I used to have a lot of dinner parties and this one woman showed up and she was a lawyer and she said, wow, I haven't had a dinner party in years. And now that I know that I can have a dinner party with dirty laundry all over the place, <laughs> then maybe I should start having dinner parties. And I, I didn't know whether that was a backhanded compliment. <laughs> she was commenting on my lack of cleanliness, but, but it's a lot harder to have say dinner parties when you move to a place like San Francisco or a place where it's full of ambitious people and busy people. And Ambition is something that the Epicureans are very skeptical about, right? And they see ambition as potentially a corrosive desire. If we were to diagnose some of the ailments of American culture today, I think Epicurus would probably recognize a lot of the things that seem to be at the root of modern anxiety, right? There's a lot that's changed since ancient Greece, but there's a lot that's the same, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I, and actually, I was having a conversation with a guy who's, he's great. He runs a stoic camp for students and he's, and he pressed me at one point and said, Epicureanism, it's, it's not challenging, right? It doesn't make demands on you the way that stoicism does. And initially I thought, oh, he might be right about that, but it is so diagnostic, right? It's here's how you're messing up your life. Right. And it's fixable, but you have to change your priorities or right? you have to reorient what matters. Just saying, oh, the Epicureans pursue pleasure and we all want that and it's not all that hard. Right. That's it's actually it does require you to think some things just don't matter as much as I've made them out to. And they're pulling me away from things that I really do think matter. If you ask someone, do you want close friendships? No one says no. 
right? They might occasionally say, I want to be a billionaire more, but I find that sad. And I think it's probably not even really true to go back to your question about this idea that, no, you're not happy, that there's some objective conception. But yeah, so ambition, I think, it pulls us often away from our family. So insofar as we do have close family, we move away from them to San Francisco to succeed. I actually got obsessed with, semi-obsessed, that makes it sound sad, but with the book Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. And there's this two cowboys and the one who's super charming and beloved and everybody thinks he's great is this character Gus. And he's trying to seduce this this younger woman and she wants to go to San Francisco. And that's like the, her dream. And he says, life in San Francisco is still just life. It's better to focus on these simple things like comfortable beds and that kind of thing. And then because he wants to seduce her, he says, feisty older gentleman. But I do think there's a sense in which we pull ourselves away from very valuable things by pursuing ambition. And, and Epicurus says, oh, and you're also bringing along this anxiety and dissatisfaction. So it is counterintuitive us, of us to say we need to lower our ambition. And Epicurus has this uh, view that sort of things just look good and we have to measure or adjust for them. There's no way that the things that ambition offers will stop looking good. We have to actually deliberate our way out of making them look good. This is a little bit like the idea that you look at a stick in water and it looks bent. And just because you know it's not doesn't make it not look bent. And ambition, I think, is like that for Epicurus. We're going to be drawn to it and we have to constantly say, but it's not that good. But it's not that good. So, yeah, I think he thinks that it's a problem and he thinks we want it. In contrast with, say, a Buddhist view, which sees attachment right, and desire at the source of all suffering. He's not telling people to, right, abandon all attachment and, and abandon all desire. He's just saying you need to have a, a strategy for understanding how to identify and manage and constrain desire, right? Yeah. And I think and part of it too is that you just get all of these good things when you constrain your desires, right? So if you don't spend all your time working to chase ambition and you do make friends, then you can do all sorts of things with them that you can remember, right? And so you can focus on the things that give you value and joy now and will serve you later when maybe... So Epicurus has this view that when you suffer a misfortune or, or fall into hard times. It's like we said, it was that the friends will be there to support you. But he also has this idea of positive distraction. So the Stoics will say, if your kid dies, you didn't lose your virtue. So that's why they think you shouldn't grieve. It's just that you haven't lost anything of value. But the Epicureans obviously think pain is bad and they think your friends do contribute to your life. And so they develop strategies for coping. And one is having your friends invite you over for dinner, for instance. And another is replaying your memories as a kind of positive distraction. And so they think a lot of stuff- Like an Irish wake. Yeah, exactly. It's like an Irish wake. And it probably actually, as long as nobody gets hostile when they get drunk, then it's, it is like an Irish wake. You probably would involve some drinking and a lot of laughing. So yeah, it's interesting that, again, if you're not working all the time, then you have these friends and you do the things you remember and you've cultivated them so that they're there. And so he just thinks those things are way more important and make you feel like you're living each day well, as opposed to focusing on what you can get at a time you might not even be alive. It's probably a lot harder to adopt the Epicurean approach to life after you've been 
formed. And, and it's, it's something that is best served up at a young age, right? So he actually talks about how to raise your children or has implications for how to raise your children, right? It's easier to make a, an Epicurean as a small child, teenager, right? But, you know, I, if you ask most parents how they're raising their children, I think they would agree with something point you made, which is the way you raise your kids implies a philosophy of how you think people ought to be or live. So the way we're raising children today doesn't seem to be in the service of producing Epicureans. So it's interesting because I'm for the first time teaching uh, a first-year seminar on the good life. And the book itself is part of a series, uh, these guides to the good life. And there's been a kind of radical shift in the pedagogy of teaching, especially for these wisdom traditions. So usually you just treat them as historical artifacts with some good philosophical ideas, but not as ways of living, which is selling them short because they were ways of living. And But I feel weird. Is, is that just a fear of being normative in the classroom? Well, so at least because you're offering them so many different things, it almost seems like the weird thing is that it's about their lives and you have this fourth wall or whatever they call it. And once you start talking about things that are relevant to their lives and allow them space to talk to one another about what they value and their life direction, they're like first year students, then it starts feeling uh, more personal than I'm used to being in a philosophy classroom. It's going great so far. But I do wonder for the students what they're going to talk about ambition actually tomorrow. So I will be interested. And, you know, there are other things, too, about Epicureanism that younger people are not. They need to be sold on a little bit. But I do think that there are times in your life that are formative. And in fact, if you look at the literature on when people have the most radical shifts in their values and their their traits, even on the big five, there aren't that many times. And one of the main ones is when you enter the workplace or kind of a college environment. And so there are times in life where you're more likely to assess your values and make changes. And at least according to the big five theory, we're past that now, but it will change again, apparently when we retire. So yeah, I think you're right that there are better times to do these assessments. I don't know that Epicurus thinks there's only those times, but at least the empirical literature suggests there are prime times for doing it. But it doesn't seem like there's any need to have any particular personality type to subscribe to this philosophy, I mean, is there? You can be extroverted, you can be introverted. This neurotic is probably the one thing that probably doesn't work too well. Yeah, it's interesting because there is, so Epicurus is a materialist, right? He's a physicalist. So he thinks that our atomic structure does explain our consciousness and all sorts of features of us. And there's this really fascinating passage in Lucretius where he does talk about how we have different atomic makeups that affect our psychology. So he says that people who are prone, more prone to say having a temper have more fiery atoms and people who tend to be more timid have chill deer-like minds. But then he follows that up by saying, and we'll never get rid of those things. We can't eliminate them, but we can use philosophy and all sorts of other strategies to get around them, essentially. So he says that the traces will always be there, but we can arrange our lives and think about our lives and engage in philosophy and make things a lot better. But it is interesting. He is a materialist. He does think our natural dispositions and to some extent our childhoods affect the strategies at least we need to use to become a good Epicurean. And to some extent, some of the limitations on how good of an Epicurean we can be. 
Now, I think you also talk a bit about sex, romance, right? And it seems like just like with food, there were disputes about exactly what the Epicureans thought about sex and love and romance, right? Where some thought that wine, woman, and song, but there was another sort of accusation that they were against all that. Yeah. So I think it's more like good women and song and good wine. (laughs) So good wine, good women. And I don't think they care what song you sing. But yeah, so there's this, it's an interesting thing. And this is, the book is largely public facing, but one of the things that's great about working with Oxford is they allowed me to do all sorts of scholarship and talk about scholarship. And so there's a lot of scholarship in there because I am an expert in ancient Greek philosophy. And there's this very interesting dispute about whether Epicurus thought we should marry and have children and what kinds of intimate relationships we should have and how exactly countercultural he was. But yeah, so there's a commentator, Gassendi, who essentially amended the text. The text came down to us as, and the sage will marry and have children unless something prohibits it or gets in the way, right? So you're like, okay, you don't meet the right person or there's no Epicureans in town or something, right? Or you need to focus on something else. But the original text doesn't have anything against marriage. But I think because commentators thought, again, that he was abstemious and that he was self-sufficient, and they just thought, he, like other sages, he can't be interested in this. But it seems pretty clear to me that there's lots of other evidence that Epicureans married and had children and named their children Epicurus, which if he's opposed to it, why would they do that? He even took over Metrodorus's the guardianship of his children and set aside a dowry for his daughter to marry. So again, I think it's a weird historical feature that some people just couldn't believe that he would like romantic relationships. And it's a strange feature of the intellectual reception of Epicurus. But yes, and and then he says, we have this quote from Athenaeus, it's something like, I can't make sense of the good unless I account for the pleasures of taste and sound and sex. And so it's really weird that people are like, let's just ignore that. (laughs) It's very focused claim. But he does think, I think, as we all do, that there are a lot of ways, the idea is you're supposed to engage in these activities in a way that minimizes or has no harm involved. And there are a lot of ways where, you know, sexual attraction and sexual activity just goes really wrong. And especially if you start thinking of various kinds of sexual experience, especially with particular people as necessary, right? Or if you want to have the best relationships with the most powerful people, then it becomes coercive. And so I think he does think that most sexual relationships are extravagant. So they're not strictly necessary, but they do make life better and that it can often go corrosive really quickly. And I mean, we see this in contemporary culture with incels who, people who can't find sexual partners who lash out against women and men that they think are successful with women. So there's lots of ways that sexual attraction in particular goes badly. And I think it is a powerful enough volatile enough force that he has good reason to be worried about it. But again, it's one of those things where if you do it right, it contributes to the good in your life. Maybe worry about the kind of jealousy and obsessive attraction and so forth. Yeah. So Lucretius, who's his main promoter in the Roman time, wrote this really great kind of biting satire about what happens. He's focusing on men when they get obsessed and they they basically turn this perfectly normal woman or in fact really unattractive or un, not very 
ethical or desirable woman into this saint. So he uses this idea. It's like there's basically a consumptive, someone who has tuberculosis. And you're like, oh, she's a thin, beautiful wave. <laughs> so yeah, I think once you get fixated on someone or you get jealous or then everything goes bad for him. Well, now I, we have to talk about death because this is your expertise. And I actually did another podcast where we talked about Epicurus and he's got a very particular approach to death. And I think it's summarized by this quote. I, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but he who uh, least needs tomorrow most enjoys tomorrow, right? Yeah, and and I think what's interesting about that quote is that when people think about Epicurus on death, they often focus on this one argument he gives, which is like this death is nothing to us argument. And the idea of that argument is that everything that's good or bad for us depends on our experience of it. So it's, we, it has to be pleasant or painful. And since death is annihilation, there is no experience. It can't be pleasure or painful. And so we shouldn't fear the state of being dead. But there are lots of other reasons to fear death. And, and that's obvious. And lots of people pointed that out. And so Epicurus is not, it's not that one argument. And, and the one you mentioned, I think, is one of the most interesting ones, which is the idea that we can treat life sometimes as a corrosive desire, that we have to have more of it. Like you can never live too long. You need more and more of it, just like you need more and more of wealth. And essentially, again, these things about friendship and food and stuff, there's a enoughness. And so Epicurus thinks that if you're living well and you've got everything taken care of, right, then you're essentially every day, you're like, this life is really good. And if it would be nice, it's extravagant if I have another one, right? But this is enough. And I had this kind of joke for a while about this, which is I made a good run, right? So it's been a good run. This is enough. It would be really nice if there were more. And since there is this, especially I think there's a lot of, and it, there's some articles about how this is really pervasive in Silicon Valley again. And so- Freeze your brain, <laughs> like resuscitate it and do have a blood boy to keep you young and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then, so this idea that I think that it's tied up with other kinds of corrosion. So you have, you need more money and more time to spend your money that you don't have time to spend now. So it's a kind of just another expression of greed. And then there's other ways that we fear death and in particular we fear dying right the process and some people would rather just check out the people who leave the party without saying goodbye um but you know death is actually slow and messy and so epicurus himself gives an account of his death and it was fairly painful it's probably that he had kidney stones but he says something like my experiences my past and present experiences with friendship counterbalance it and so, again, this is one place where when Epicurus says that friends make the difference in our happiness, this is another place, right? So if you think about people dying alone in hospice, that's like what we don't want. And it's interesting that given that we don't want that, we spend so little time planning for it or thinking about it. And so Epicurus thinks you, if you face the inevitability of death and you have people who will help you at the time, then that takes care of that other fear. So he, he has strategies and arguments for various kinds of fears. And I think the one you mentioned is to some extent the most interesting one because we do feel like if we don't complete projects or we don't have things in the future that we're being robbed of something, it's a deprivation and we don't want that deprivation. And so he has to be able to come up with a conception of satisfaction that can be met today and tomorrow and end there, right? So that everything has to be good if I'm alive to live it. 
So it's conditionally good as opposed to like necessary for my life being good. And that, I think that change in mindset is difficult, but I think actually you can get yourself into it if you're living a good life, right? You're like, this is, this is enough. But I think that's the harder sell. Yeah. And you also mentioned that he advocates that you live unnoticed, right? It's hard nowadays, right? To do that. How do, how do you live unnoticed in the modern world? You have to work pretty hard at it. Yeah. And that's, it's weird. We don't have a good quote. We don't have Epicurus writing that. It's attributed to him. And there is evidence that he says, steer clear of major politics. And it's clear that he thinks you shouldn't chase honor or fame. And so in some sense, the live unnoticed is just choose things that are small, that you don't care about fame or notoriety. And he also thinks that politics is bad because you pander and you give up your ethics and it's just, there's a lot of sacrifice. But he does think some, you want to be noticed by your friends. He wrote stuff. He had a school and he argued against his competitors because he and the Stoics, you know, the founder of Stoicism, they lived together in Athens at the same time. And so they were competing really for the same students. And he had a house in town. The idea is you're supposed to be able to live unnoticed in plain sight even then, right? And those are things we do. We go about town, we have friends, we argue with people. But I think it's this idea that you want it really badly, like you want the respect and honor or the power. But I do think, so I wrote a chapter in the book about social media, right? And this idea that we want to be seen and liked by as many people and that we'll pander to the camera. And again, I think he thinks these are things that look good to us and it's hard to fight them. But if you look at the empirical literature, especially for young people, social media makes them miserable. And that we do these things or that it's hard to do them for Epicurus. He's, yeah, but they make you anxious, right? What the solution is, I don't know, right? For some people, it's to close their social media accounts because there's no way they can approach them in a healthy way. For others, it's to think about social media differently. But I think you're right that the internet and video and just even the requirements of our job, I don't, this has been a fun conversation. I've really liked it, but you know, this is something that I, that makes me naturally sort of uncomfortable, but it's part of promoting a book. <laughs> there is a sense in which all of these things have to be done insofar as we can do it. And Epicurus does think getting, having a job and paying your bills is a necessary good. And so sometimes that's going to require that you do things in the public eye that if you're comfortable that you're not pandering or compromising your friendships, then I think he would think, well, maybe those are just extravagances or just part of the necessary features of your job. Well, you, know, you also have, I think you have a whole chapter on this idea of speaking frankly, right? So, and, and it was very nuanced, right? If you care about people, you want them to live better lives. You want them to be happier, but most people don't want to hear it. So he says, when you detect resistance, back off, right? This seems to be a really difficult thing to learn how to do. I found that unless somebody's paying me for advice, Nobody wants to hear it. You know, my friends don't want to hear it. My family don't want to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. Yeah, he thinks that criticism is always painful, even for really resilient people. And, and if you're going to call someone pain, it has to have a really good justification. It has to pay off. And a lot of times it doesn't because we just mess it up. I'm engaging in this sort of pedagogical experiment, which is, you know, I have teaching this class and I'm doing the assessment very differently because this is something people have been experimenting with since COVID. And and one of the things that they did at midterm was this midterm self-assessment. 
right? And over time, I gave them these handouts about what it is to be a good participant in a philosophical conversation, what it means to really be present in class rather than just sitting there, why reading makes classroom experience better. Over time, they get this lesson repeatedly, and then I ask them to self-assess on these dimensions. How are things going for you when it comes to paying attention to what other people say and thinking hard about not having a knee-jerk reaction where you reject the idea and various kinds of philosophical growth. And what I found that was interesting is how amazingly honest the students were in their self-reflection. Some of them wrote like four pages and talked about how it had changed their approach to applying for internships and approaching friends and thinking about resilience. And so sometimes actually just like talking in general terms about what makes life go well or what makes things go well will prompt that for people. And one thing I noticed is the students who had to, not had to, but felt that they should report things about ways that they should grow were the students who turned in the assignment last. So I think it was difficult for them to say some of those things, but they were so honest and they offered it in such detail that part of me thinks that I'm not sure there's any evidence in Philodemus or whether there's any evidence in business assessment, like whatever it is when you do the annual reports, whether doing it that way is less difficult for people. But it's, again, that's just an anecdote of something that I'm experimenting with now. Well, could, could we make university education more like the garden where we just all go have some dinner and talk about texts? I am experimenting with that. And I even thought about requiring them to eat with one another. But it is, to me, it's so non-traditional to teach this way. But it's fascinating because the other day I told this one class, I said, you may not have noticed this, but all of you spoke today. And it was about the reading. And I'm not some master teacher where like somehow I'm doing something that other people couldn't do. And it could fall apart. I don't really know. But there is a sense in which, you know, students can be intrinsically motivated. And when they're thinking about it as a growth opportunity and they're thinking about it as their life, then yeah, they it might be more garden-esque. And they seem to be making f- friendships. Uh, so it's going super well. And there is a kind of frank speech, but it's, it's self-directed. I, I think that's kind of interesting. Now, in De Rerum Natura, Lucretius ends the book with the plague in Rome. And you wrote this book during a modern plague, obviously a much less dangerous plague, but one which nevertheless tested a lot of people. You have a theory as to why he ended with that kind of account of the plague, right? Which was, in a way, it was a test to see if people could live and live like Epicureans in spite of this danger, right? Yeah, it's interesting because Lucretius, the um, the book just it just ends almost so jarringly. It's there's this horrible plague. Everybody's dying. There are all these gruesome details. And then it just ends with this idea that it got so bad that people were throwing their dead relatives on other people's funeral pyres. It's like stealing somebody's coffin right as they were about to put their dad in it. You just shove your mother in there. And that's just the end. And people thought, oh, did it? Did he intend to end it here? And why is it so depressing given that the ideas were pursuing happiness? And some people have thought, oh, it's it's supposed to be this test of if you could survive under these circumstances, then you would be a really good Epicurean. And my reading on it 
is not actually all that far from it. Because what I kind of suspect is Lucretius was looking at the account that Thucydides, the ancient Greek historian who was, in fact, caught the plague and survived it, his account of it. And, and if you look, Thucydides has exactly the same idea that they're stealing burial pyres. And the next part in Thucydides isn't in Lucretius. And, and essentially what he says is the Athenians, when they realized that they could die, and when they saw that that the gods weren't going to intervene on their behalf, then that they just started living more like Epicureans. So they decided that honor didn't matter, and they pursued pleasure, and they they essentially lost their fear of the gods. And so it's there's this part of Thucydides where he says the plague made the Athenians into Epicureans. And so my thought is that part was going to be in Lucretius. It doesn't mean that he wasn't still going to end with the plague, but I think that it's just too Epicurean for Lucretius not to have intended to include it. So one last question. Look, we've seen this revival of Stoicism, like you said, centered in, in Silicon Valley, and we haven't seen a similar kind of popular movement around Epicureanism. Do you think that there's an explanation for that? Is the sort of modern American society, there's no money in Epicureanism, is there? You can't really, if it says, hey, you don't need ambition, you don't need power, you don't need extravagant pleasures, you don't need all this stuff, who would be promoting it? I guess the people who want to be happy. <laughs> I think that you're right. Although, to be fair, I, I think most Americans don't know almost anything about Epicureanism. I had to sell this, not sell for money, but I had to convince the editors of the Oxford series that Epicurus warranted a volume of this sort, because most people don't know much about him. So there is this part of me that would like to think that if America was all in a big reading group where they read a book about Epicurus, they would be like, oh my gosh, I'm one of these people. So it's true, though, that it's not going to, if the idea is Epicureanism will make you better at your job, or Epicureanism will make you wealthy, then he can't really do that. But, you know, the Stoics didn't intend to do that. It's, in fact, just a perversion of their philosophy. Maybe it's a good thing that the people who would take up Epicureanism are at least taking up authentic Epicureanism. And I don't mean that to throw shade at the people who use Stoicism as a, a kind of self-help tactic, because I can see why people would use it that way, and the Roman Stoics used it that way. But I do think that at least this way, or at least in, in my attempt to mark, market uh, Epicureanism, I'm trying to do it authentically. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me. This book is called Living for Pleasure, an Epicurean Guide to Life. Let's talk again soon. Yeah, thanks. This was really fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.